Hey, it's Guy here. So have you ever wondered where morality comes from? Well, what if I told you its roots come from our shared ancestry with other primates? On this episode, we explore what animals can teach us about our own behavior and how the way they experience empathy and altruism are actually not that far from how we experience them. That's all on today's show. It's called Animals and Us, and it originally aired in May of 2015. This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Um, TED. TED. Technology. Entertainment. Design. Design. Is that really what it stands for? <laughs> I've never known that. Delivered at TED conferences around the world. It's the gift of the human imagination. We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. I'm Guy Raz, and on today's show, animals and us. Ideas about the way we interact and how those interactions define us. And one of the things that really started to change the way we think about animals happened a little more than 100 years ago. It involved a U.S. president, a bear, a cartoonist, and a group of savvy toy makers. Writer John Wellam told the story on the TED stage. So uh, it was the fall of 1902, and President Theodore Roosevelt needed a little break from the White House, so he took a train to Mississippi to do a little black bear hunting outside of a town called Smeads. The first day of the hunt, they didn't see a single bear, so it was a big bummer for everyone. But the second day, the dogs cornered one after a really long chase. But by that point, the president had given up and gone back to camp for lunch. So his hunting guide cracked the animal on the top of the head with the butt of his rifle and then tied it up to a tree and started tooting away on his bugle to call Roosevelt back so he could have the honor of shooting it. The bear was a female. It was uh, dazed, injured, severely underweight, a little mangy looking. And when Roosevelt saw this animal tied up to the tree, he just couldn't bring himself to fire at it. He felt like that would go against his code as a sportsman. Wow. What an awesome dude. I mean, he's just like, he's like, I'm not going to shoot it. Yeah. He says, no thanks. Well, actually, that's how we remember the story. Actually, what he Uh says is, uh, no thank you. And then he turns to his friend and he says, put it out of its misery. Oh, And his friend takes a Japanese hunting knife and slashes it open in the gut, and they carry it back to camp, and they eat it. That didn't really happen. No, that that really happened. That really happened. uh, They ate the bear? They ate the bear. I mean, you have to think, I mean, Roosevelt is a hunter. You know, he's not a PETA activist. So that was merciful, you know, in his mind. Uh, But it just involved cutting cutting the bear's gut open with with a knife. And a few days later, the scene was memorialized in a political cartoon by Clifford Berryman in the Washington Post. Not the knife moment, but the moment where Roosevelt decides not to shoot the bear. And the cartoon was called Drawing a Line in Mississippi. And it showed Roosevelt with his gun down and his arm out, sparing the bear's life. And the bear was sitting on its hind legs with these two big, frightened, wide eyes and little ears pricked up at the top of its head. It looked really helpless, like he just wanted to kind of sweep it up into your arms and reassure it. It would have looked familiar at the time, but if you go looking for the cartoon now, you sort of recognize the animal right away. It's a teddy bear. And this is how the teddy bear was born. Essentially, toy makers took the bear from the cartoon, turned it into a plush toy, and then named it after President Roosevelt, Teddy's Bear. And you, you can really trace that bear in the cartoon to the teddy bear, that sort of anthropomorphized, very cuddly-looking somewhat pathetic-looking creature from Berryman's cartoon became the teddy bear. Meanwhile, he's eating bear filet mignon in his tent. Yeah, the last day they had uh, roasted bear paws, I think was the last thing they had. You did not learn that at the toy store. No. That was left out of the story. And that's the point. I think it's cutting a bear open with a knife and, quote, putting it out of its misery does not seem sympathetic now, although it did at the time. So before all this happened, it didn't occur to anyone to make a, like a cute, cuddly bear toy? Right. You know, the, you didn't have bear toys unless the bears were 
these kind of scary monsters. Even though the, it didn't really take long after Roosevelt's hunt in 1902 for the toy to become a full-blown craze, most people figured it was a, a fad. It was a sort of silly political novelty item, and it would go away once the president left office. And so by 1909, when Roosevelt's successor, William Howard Taft, was getting ready to be inaugurated, the toy industry was on the hunt for the next big thing. Uh, they, they didn't do too well. That January, Taft was the guest of honor at a banquet in Atlanta. And for days in advance, the big news was the menu. They were going to be serving him a southern specialty, a delicacy, really, called possum and taters. So you'd have a, a whole opossum roasted on a bed of sweet potatoes, and then sometimes they'd, they'd leave the big you know, tail on it like a big meaty noodle. The one brought to Taft's table weighed 18 pounds. So, after dinner, the orchestra started to play, and the guests burst into song, and all of a sudden, Taft was surprised with the presentation of a gift from a group of local supporters. And this was a stuffed opossum toy, all beady-eyed and ball-eared, and it was a new product they were putting forward to be the William Taft presidency's answer to Teddy Roosevelt's teddy bear. They were calling it the Billy Possum. So this really became a mascot for the Taft administration for, you know, a couple months. And as he started traveling the country, uh, uh, frequently people gave him live opossums in cages. Wow. So uh, I wonder how he felt about that. I mean, he's like, oh, another possum. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, there, were, there really were, much. like, stories in the New York Times that were like, the president was given another possum in Dallas yesterday, you know? <laughs> But even with all this marketing, the life of the Billy Possum turned out to be just pathetically brief. The toy was an absolute flop, and it was almost completely forgotten by the end of the year. And what that means is that the Billy Possum didn't even make it to Christmas time, which, when you think about it, is a special sort of tragedy for a toy. <laughs> See, we can explain that failure two ways. The first, well, it's pretty obvious. I'm going to go ahead and say it out loud anyway. Opossums are hideous. But maybe more importantly is that the story of the Billy Possum was all wrong, especially compared to the backstory of the teddy bear. Think about it. For most of humans' evolutionary history, what's made bears impressive to us has been their complete independence from us. It's that they live these parallel lives as menaces and competitors. By the time Roosevelt went hunting in Mississippi, that stature was being crushed. And the animal that he had roped to a tree really was a symbol for all bears. Whether those animals lived or died now was entirely up to the compassion or the indifference of people. I'd argue that the invention of the teddy bear inside that story is a more important story, a story about how dramatically our ideas about nature can change, and also about how on the planet right now, the stories that we tell are dramatically changing nature. Because Think about the teddy bear. It, in, for us, in retrospect, it feels like an obvious hit because bears are so cute and cuddly and who wouldn't want to give one to their kids to play with? But the truth is, is that in 1902, bears weren't cute and cuddly. In, in, I mean, they looked the same, but no one thought of them that way. In 1902, bears were monsters. Bears were something that, that frickin' terrified kids. For generations at that point, the bear had been a shorthand for all the danger that people were encountering on the frontier. And the federal government was actually systematically exterminating bears and lots of other predators, too, like coyotes and wolves. These animals, they were being demonized. They were called murderers because they killed people's livestock. And so what I'm saying is the teddy bear was born into the middle of this great spasm of extermination. And you can see it as a sign that maybe some people deep down we're starting to feel conflicted about all that killing. America still hated the bear and feared it, but all of a sudden America also wanted to give the bear a great big hug. Nature could only start to seem this pure and adorable because we didn't have to be afraid of it anymore. And you can see that cycle playing out again and again with all kinds of animals. It seems like we're always stuck between demonizing a species and wanting to wipe it out, and then when we get very close to doing that, empathizing with it as an underdog wanting to show it compassion. So we exert our power, but then we're unsettled by how powerful we are. We're like a really bad 
boyfriend humans when it comes to animals. <laughs> like art, like it's a totally schizophrenic relationship. It absolutely is. And I think it's it's hard to, at the same time, I think it's really hard to be very critical of it, for me at least, because it's um, it's understandable on both sides. You know, when we're really afraid of things, that's absolutely understandable. I don't want, you know, wild wolves uh, racing through the city. I think a lot of kind of conservation-minded regular folk, we have this idea that we just, we want some animals out there. And that number is really hard to peg down and imagine how we're going to live with that number of animals. So it makes sense that it would be constantly this kind of back and forth, this kind of flux of, you know, getting what we want and then not really being sure why we wanted it anymore. What do you think the the stories that we tell about animals like, and the ones we pick to tell stories about, like, wh- what do they say about, about humans? I think they say all, all sorts of different things. I mean, we use these animals to say what we need to say sometimes. So I think that, you know, animals are these kind of convenient props to work out a lot of kind of deeper emotions and questions. I mean, I think it's the reason why when you look at a lot of children's books, they all have animal characters, even if the stories themselves have nothing to do with animals. I mean, we have like a book where a sort of ungainly pig that wants to be a figure skater and she tries really hard and she makes it. And, you know, that has nothing to do with pigs. It could have been a girl. But I think somehow creating these stories that involve animals, these lessons become more digestible somehow. And I think we do that all the time as adults, too. I mean, I think when we talk about the need to save the bald eagle from DDT and other pollutants, you know, it's partly maybe because we think bald eagles are awesome and we want to see them flying around. But I think it's also partly a way to talk about our shame or our uncertainty about what we're doing to the planet. The stories that we tell about wild animals are so subjective. They can be irrational or romanticized or sensationalized. Sometimes they just have nothing to do with the facts. But in a world of conservation reliance, those stories have very real consequences because now how we feel about an animal affects its survival more than anything that you read about in ecology textbooks. Storytelling matters now. Emotion matters. Our imagination has become an ecological force. And so maybe the teddy bear worked in part because the legend of Roosevelt and that bear in Mississippi was kind of like an allegory of this great responsibility that society was just beginning to face up to back then. It would be another 71 years before the Endangered Species Act was passed. But really, I mean, here's its whole ethos, boiled down into something like a scene you'd see in a stained glass window. The bear is a helpless victim tied to a tree, and the President of the United States decided to show it some mercy. Thank you. John Wellam, his latest book is called Wild Ones. Check out his full talk at TED. NPR.org. Our show today, Animals and Us, ideas about the way we relate to them and what it says about us. I'm Guy Raz. Stay with us. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone, just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who helped make this podcast possible. First, to Simply Safe. Home security done right. The New York Times wire cutter calls Simply Safe the best home security. Simply Safe is thoughtfully designed so you can blanket your home with protection and never notice it. There are no contracts, and CNET, the wire cutter, and PC Mag all named it their top pick for home security. Over two million people use it every day. Learn more about how Simply Safe can help you today. Go to simplysafe.com/radiohour. Thanks also to Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Rocket Mortgage gives you the confidence when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. Rocket Mortgage is simple, allowing you to fully understand all the details and be confident you're getting the right mortgage. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com ideas. Jessica? Equal housing lender. Licensed in all 50 states. NMLSconsumeraccess.org number 3030.
How can a family keep its traumas from being passed down from generation to generation? The answer for one family may lie in the tiny Alaskan community where their ancestors have lived for centuries. I remember my uncle saying, here, take this 22. Until you can shoot a ground squirrel through the eye, you can't hunt with us. A story about what we inherit on this week's Code Switch. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, animals and us. Ideas about what our relationship with them tells us about ourselves. So, could you tell me about your dogs? Um, we have three at the moment. I have an American bulldog. Okay. You want to say hello, Dune? Called Dune. Hello, Dune. And then Hugo. So he's a little French bulldog. Oh. And then we have Zuzu, who's our latest acquisition. She's a rescue. She's a, um, a Beauceron. <laughs> okay, that'll do. If you are going to be a dog, you would probably want to be owned by Ian Dunbar. I come from England. I graduated as a veterinarian and then came to the States to do a PhD in dog behavior. Ian trains other people how to train their dogs. I try to teach people how to communicate better with their animals so that they can live happily with people and people get to enjoy them more. And when you think about it, is there any animal that we're more connected to, more invested in than our dogs? I mean, is there any animal that loves us back in the same way that we love them? Well, Ian Dunbar would say no, and he thinks that we need to be a lot nicer to them. Here's the opening from his talk. Dogs deserve better. You see someone in the park, and there's the owner in the park, and their dog's over here, and they say, Rover, come here. Rover, come here. Rover, come here, you son of a bitch! The dog says, I don't think so. (laughs) I mean, who in their right mind would think that a dog would want to approach them when they're screaming like that. Instead, the dog says, I know that tone. I know that tone. Previously, when I've approached, I've got punished there. Dogs get so abused. The reason for this actually has to do with watching people train puppies and realizing they have horrendous interaction skills. Puppy jumps up, you open the dog book. What does it say? Hold his front paws, squeeze his front paws, squirt him in the face with lemon juice, hit him on the head with a rolled up newspaper, knee him in the chest, flip him over backwards. This is insanity. Okay, this sounds like totally harsh and cruel, but but a lot of people still train their dogs this way, right? You have so hit the nail on the head. So let me give you examples. You know, like a dog pees in the living room. Most people go, wah, grab the dog and rub his nose in it. Which, and all that teaches the dog is that your owner's pretty damn weird. I mean, like you want some doggy voices. This puppy goes down the garden to talk to an Akita through the fence, say, oh, Mr. Akita, I've got a real problem with my owners. And Akita says, you know, what's that, grasshopper? Well, I was just peeing in the living room because the carpet soaks up the urine and I don't get my feet wet, and they came running at me and grabbed me and, and, just, and just rubbed my nose into it. Who knew, Ian, that there were, there were Akitas from the east end of London? <laughs> so, um, yeah. so here's the thing, right? Like, your dog pees in the living room, and then you, you discover it, like, an hour later. Like, how do you teach the dog not to do that? without, you know, sort of getting angry at him. Um, Well, you always go with the dog to go pee. And when he does it, then you give him treats and you take him on a walk rather than walking the dog until he does it. And then when he does it, you end the walk, thereby punishing him for doing it. I mean, the dog, again, will go down the garden to Akita and say, Oh, Mr. Akita, can't believe my owners. Every time I go pee, they give me free liver treats. Wow, if I'd known I could cash in my urine and feces for liver treats, well, I would have hauled it, you know, when they were at work. And this, to me, is always what training is. So we really motivate the dog to want to do it, such that the need for punishment seldom comes up. And uh, the stages are training first. The first stage is basically teaching a dog ESL. Um, I I could speak to you and say, Leite chai, pezi pezi. 
Come on, something should happen now. Why aren't you responding? Oh, you don't speak Swahili. Well, I've got news for you. The dog doesn't speak English. So the first stage in training is to teach the dog ESL, English as a second language. And now the dog knows that sit means sit. And you can actually communicate to a dog in a perfectly constructed English sentence. Phoenix, come here. Take this and go to Jamie, please. And I've taught a Phoenix, come here, take this, and the name of my son, Jamie. And the dog can take a note, and I've got my own little search and rescue dog. You'll find Jamie wherever he is, you know. So, your husband's just as easy to train. Your kids are easy to train. All you've got to do is to watch them, to time sample the behavior, and say every five minutes you ask the question, is it good or is it bad? If it's good, say, that was really neat, thank you. That is such a powerful training technique. Wow, so you can, you can actually use these techniques in your own family? Yes, yeah. I was really, you know, if you asked me what's the thing you're proudest of, I would say it was the interaction I, I had with my son when he was growing up. I can honestly say I never got angry with him once. I never had an argument. And I was very conscious of this fact. I didn't want to do it. It's not me. I, I don't want to get angry. I don't want to argue. So wait. So you never had an argument with your son. Like, I'm thinking about this, and I'm thinking, like, <laughs> You don't believe it. Well, that, um, I mean, that's, they're just even small things. Like, the, you know, you're on, like, a long drive, and, and he's, like, seven, and he's, like, kicking the back of your chair. And at a certain point, you're just like, stop it. I, I mean, the solution to many of the annoying things that children do um, actually came from dogs. It's an exercise we do in um, adolescent dog classes. And I say, right, what we're going to do is put craziness on cue. Because your dogs are crazy, they're active, they're noisy, they bark all the time, you can't control it. So, all right, have them, jazz them up. I want all dogs, all four paws to leave the floor, lots of vocalization. Humans do it too, act crazy. Then I say, settle them down. I did this with my son. We called it silly time. And I put silliness on cue. Wow. So now when he's acting silly or noisy, what I say is... You know the car is a non-silly zone when it's moving. I said, if you need to be silly, we can pull over. You can get out and be as silly as you like. Because, you see, children screaming, it's a normal behavior. What are you going to do, put a shock collar around their neck? I mean, it's ridiculous. You know, we have to respond to the needs, I think. At any point in your son's childhood, and I don't want to get too, like, you know, like psychoanalytical on you, but did he ever say, like, Dad, I'm not a dog? Um, no, we have, <laughs> we have joked about it, but I spend all my waking life thinking about more efficient and effective ways to train an animal, taking into account the animal's point of view. And so it was very easy and, and really enjoyable for me when you know I had my son to then use the same principles on him. And so I, I guess that's dogs have, and, and all animals have, have taught me... Um, Keep your cool. Ian Dunbar, PhD and dog trainer. Check out his full talk at TED.com. And if you are wondering what your dog really thinks of you, the poet Billy Collins might have an answer because he wrote a poem about it and delivered it on the TED stage. I am the dog you put to sleep as you like to call the needle of oblivion, come back to tell you this simple thing. I never liked you. (laughs) When I licked your face, I thought of biting off your nose. When I watched you toweling yourself dry, I wanted to leap and unman you with a snap. I resented the way you moved, your lack of animal grace, the way you would sit in a chair to eat, a napkin on your lap, a knife in your hand. I would have run away, but I was too weak. A trick you taught me while I was learning to sit and heal and, greatest of insults, shake hands without a hand. I admit the sight of the leash would excite me, but only because it meant I was about to smell things you had never touched. You do not want to believe this, but I have no reason to lie. I hated the car, hated the rubber toys, disliked your friends and worse, your relatives. The jingling of my tags drove me mad. 
you always scratched me in the wrong place. <laughs> All I ever wanted from you is food and water in my bowls. While you slept, I watched you breathe as the moon rose in the sky. It took all of my strength not to raise my head and howl. Now I am free of the collar, free of the yellow raincoat, monogram sweater, the absurdity of your lawn. And that is all you need to know about this place, except what you already supposed and are glad it did not happen sooner, that everyone here can read and write, the dogs in poetry, the cats, and all the others in prose. Thank you. Poet Billy Collins on the TED stage. His poem is called The Revenant. So, I mean, is there some truth to, to that poem? Absolutely. I adore that poem. This is Laurel Breitman. She started writing about animal behavior seven years ago, right after she met Oliver. Oliver was a Bernese mountain dog that I just absolutely fell head over heels in love with. I adopted him with my ex-husband, and he was affectionate and sweet and playful, and I really did feel like he, he was the best dog I'd, I'd ever met. Laurel and her husband and Oliver had a really solid six months. We played hide-and-seek in the apartment, and we took him on long walks, and we took him on long hikes, and we just loved the hell out of this dog. And Laurel was no stranger to animals. She'd grown up on an avocado farm with dogs and cats and donkeys, so she thought after six months that she knew Oliver pretty well. Until one morning, when she left for work. And I always just sort of petted him on the head and made sure he had some snacks out and some toys and some water. And I locked the door and I got down to street level and I realized that I'd forgotten my car keys. And I turned around and that's when I started to hear like a really loud skittering sound and also a really sad kind of howl whine. Yeah. And I hadn't heard that before. Um, a kind of like, sad, oh. sad, terrible sound. Oh. And as I walked up to my apartment door, we lived on the third floor. With every successive floor, the skittering got louder. And when I opened the door, I saw he had been sprinting back and forth um, on the other side of the door so intensely that he had carved um, grooves into our wooden floor Wow! with his nails. And so, you know, I walked him over and I led him back to his bed and I sort of calmed him down and I locked the door, I got my keys and I walked down to the front porch and I sat there and it was just totally quiet. And I was like, oh, okay, this was just a momentary thing. He must have been anxious for something that's now passed. And then as soon as I stepped one foot off the porch, I heard it again. And I looked up and um, he was a 120 pound dog and he had basically wedged his whole body into the window frame so he could look for me. Every time Laurel left the house, Oliver would struggle. Eventually, he got terrified of thunderstorms. He began to swallow plastic and hand towels and all kinds of things around the house. At one point, Oliver pushed our window air conditioning unit out of the way in our apartment, and he chewed a hole through the metal screen and somehow held the sash up, and then he jumped out of our kitchen window which wouldn't have been a big deal, except our kitchen window was on the third floor of wow. our apartment building. And so he fell 55 feet actually into the basement stairwell of the first floor apartment. Amazingly, Oliver survived that fall. And when Laurel took him to the doctor, he prescribed Oliver some pain medication and for his anxiety, Valium, which helped a little. But Laurel, who had just finished her PhD dissertation in anthropology, decided that she would try to figure out everything she could about what was happening to Oliver's mind. You know, I went and I talked to neuroscientists and neurosurgeons, and I talked to dog behaviorists, and I talked to trainers, and I talked to zookeepers, and I ended up going into the archives of some of our nation's oldest natural history museums. I even read a lot of Charles Darwin, who believed that other animals could be insane. 
And so what started as a fight to help Oliver turned into a bigger question about whether animals struggle with mental illness. And that question became the central idea of a book Laurel wrote called Animal Madness, which she describes in her TED Talk. And uh, I spent the last seven years actually looking into this topic of mental illness and other animals. Can they be mentally ill like people? And if so, what does it mean about us? And um, what I discovered is that I, I do believe they can suffer from mental illness. And actually um, looking and trying to identify mental illness in them often helps us be better friends to them and also can help us better understand ourselves. Many of us think that we can't know what another animal is thinking. And that is true. But any of you in relationships, at least this is my case, just because you ask someone that you're with or your parent or your child how they feel doesn't mean that they can tell you. Uh, they may not have words to explain what it is they're feeling, and they may not know. It also turns out that thinking about mental illness in other animals isn't actually that much of a stretch. Um, most mental disorders in the United States are fear and anxiety disorders. And when you think about it, fear and anxiety are actually really extremely helpful animal emotions. Um, usually we feel fear and anxiety in situations that are dangerous, and once we feel them, we then are motivated to move away from whatever, whatever is dangerous. The problem is when we begin to feel fear and anxiety in situations that don't call for it. Um, mood disorders, too, may actually just be the unfortunate downside of being a feeling animal. Um, and obsessive-compulsive disorders also um, are often manifestations of a really healthy animal thing, which is keeping yourself clean and groomed. Um, this tips into the territory of mental illness when you do things like compulsively overwash your hands or paws, or you develop a ritual that's so extreme that you can't sit down um, to a bowl of food unless you engage um, in that ritual. One in five Americans is currently taking a psychopharmaceutical drug from the antidepressants and anti-anxiety medications to the antipsychotics. It turns out that we owe this entire psychopharmaceutical arsenal to other animals. They, these drugs were tested in non-human animals first, and not just for toxicity, but for behavioral effects. Today, SeaWorld gives mother orcas uh, anti-anxiety medications when their calves are taken away. Um, many zoo gorillas have been given antipsychotics and anti-anxiety medications, um, but dogs like my own, Oliver, uh, are given antidepressants and some anti-anxiety medications to keep them from jumping out of buildings or jumping into traffic. But like with humans, um, sometimes it's six months in before you realize that the person that you love has some issues. <laughs> And most of us do not take the person we're dating uh, back to the bar where we met them or give them, give them back to the friend that introduced us or sign them back up on Match.com. Um, we love them anyway, and we stick to it. And that is what I did um, with my dog. In fact, Laurel's experience with Oliver convinced her that the way she was thinking about him, and maybe the way most of us think about animals, is wrong. That story and what eventually happened to Oliver in a moment. I'm Guy Raz. Our show today, Animals and Us. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to one of our sponsors who helps make this podcast possible, Subaru, whose love promise is a dedication to supporting communities. For Tucson retailer Rocky Cristofano, that just makes sense. It's simple in concept that we're trying to be involved and make the place we live a better place. And everybody goes to work knowing that this is a part of what we do at Tucson Subaru. To learn more about the Subaru commitment to its customers and communities, visit Subaru.com slash love dash promise. As soon as you wake up, you need the latest. That's why Up First is here. It's NPR's morning news podcast. In just 10 minutes or so, you can start your day informed. Listen to Up First on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. 
It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. Today on the show, animals and us. Stories and ideas about the way we interact and how those interactions define us. So when we left off, Laurel Braitman was trying to figure out what was going on with her Bernese mountain dog, Oliver, who seemed to be dealing with a severe case of mental illness. And Laurel soon found out that Oliver wasn't alone. Lots of creatures, this horse is just one example, develop self-destructive behaviors. They'll gnaw on things um, or do other things that that may also sue them, uh, even if they're self-destructive, which could be considered similar to the ways that some humans cut themselves. Plucking. Uh, Turns out if you have fur or feathers or skin, um, you can pluck yourself compulsively. And uh, some parrots actually have been studied to better understand trichotillomania or compulsive plucking in humans, something that affects 20 million Americans right now. Even veterans, um, canine veterans of conflicts of Iraq and Afghanistan are coming back Um, with what's considered canine PTSD, and they're having a hard time re-entering civilian life when they come back from deployments. They can be too scared to approach um, men with beards or to hop into cars. Um, And here is a place where I think, actually, that veterinary medicine can teach something to human medicine, which is if you take your dog, who is, say, compulsively chasing his tail, um, into the veterinary behaviorist, their first action isn't to reach for the prescription pad. It's to ask you about your dog's life. They want to know how often your dog gets outside. They want to know how much exercise your dog is getting. They want to know how much social time with other dogs and other humans. Um, they want to talk to you about what sorts of therapies, largely behavior therapies, you've tried with that animal. Um, those are the things that, that often tend to help the most, especially when combined with psychopharmaceuticals. I want to be careful and be clear, though. I do not think that canine PTSD is the same as human PTSD. But I also do not think that my PTSD is like your PTSD, or that my anxiety or that my sadness is like yours. We are all different. Two dogs um, raised in the same household, um, exposed to the very same things. One may develop, uh, say, a debilitating fear of motorcycles or a phobia of the beep of the microwave, and another one is going to be just fine. Do you think that our relationship with animals is still, like, totally primitive? Like, in some ways, totally primitive? Like, we haven't really evolved to think about them in the way that we should be thinking about them? Yes. I think we're on our way, though. So much has changed. I think in a lot of ways, the last 150 years has been this like kind of big, slow, scientific U-turn back to the 19th century and what people like Charles Darwin were saying, which was that humans are different from other animals, not in kind, but by degree. And I really think that we haven't made peace with that yet as a species. You know, certainly there's, there's some exceptions. But, but once we do, we'll be forced to reevaluate so much of our activities with the rest of animal kind. So back to Laurel's dog, Oliver. One Christmas, a couple years after his troubles began, Laurel and her husband went to California to visit her parents, and they left Oliver in a kennel. And while he was there, Oliver got sick with a case of bloat, which is basically his stomach was starting to suffocate itself. So the doctors performed emergency surgery, and then they eventually called Laurel. The surgery that they'd performed had already cost about, you know, $10,000, and they estimated a total of fifteen to 20000 And we, we didn't have the money. And, and more importantly than that, the vet thought his prospects were, were really pretty bad. So we had to decide to put him down from afar. Did you move on, or did you, did you eventually get another dog? I still haven't gotten another dog. I want to. I think that I needed to finish writing my book and to go on this kind of odyssey around the world with all of these different species and all the people that come together to help them in order to feel like I could get another dog. Yeah. I'm actually going to look at a a shelter today. Wow. Are are you nervous about, about going to the dog shelter? Nervous and excited. You know that feeling before you go on a first date? haven't had it in a long time but yeah I remember <laughs> you know like kind of like expectation of like will will I meet him or her um, and if so what am I in for that I just have no idea about 
Laura Breitman's book about the similarities between our animal relationships and our human ones is called Animal Madness. Check out her talk at TED.com. So why do you study primates? Yeah, so uh, I'm sort of holding up a mirror to humans. We have a tendency always when we do things to think that it's something that we invented or that is a cultural product. Since these animals are so close to us, it's very easy to make comparisons with human behavior. My name is Franz de Waal, and I'm a biologist by origin, and I teach psychology nowadays. And through primates, Franz has been trying to figure out the origins of certain human behaviors and values, like morality. Yeah, so, so where, where does morality come from? Yeah, that's, that's maybe the biggest question. Because over the course of human history, we've come to accept that morality probably comes from religion or civilization or tradition, right? But Franz wondered, what if it doesn't? What if it's biological? And so that's the question he decided to take on back in the 70s. At that time, all the studies on primate behavior, animal behavior in general, were on aggression and violence. All the studies on animals and all the studies on human evolution, they were basically on why are we so violent. So I studied aggressive behavior in chimpanzees. Which did indeed support the theory that human aggression is a primal instinct. Yeah, so even though I was trained that we had an aggressive instinct and that I would study chimpanzees in order to uh, elaborate on that, what I discovered is that they reconcile after fights. And he only noticed this because one day... Two chimpanzees had an enormous fight in the group, uh, and, and I was watching that. And a couple of hours later... I saw an, a big commotion in the group, and I saw two chimps kiss and embrace each other. Wow. And um, I was very surprised by that, and why, why were they so excited by this? And riding my bike back home and thinking about that event, I thought, well, these two chimps were actually the same two chimps who had to fight in the morning. That's amazing. And that's where it clicked with me, and I thought, well we could call that a reconciliation. And so the first time I saw that was extremely surprising to me. And no one had ever mentioned anything like that to me. And the literature had nothing on it. And, and once you have seen it one time, you, you see it basically every day happens 10 times a day or something like that. Franz de Waal picks up the rest of the story from the TED stage. Now this is very interesting because at the time, everything was about competition and aggression, and so it wouldn't make any sense. The only thing that matters is that you win or that you lose. But why would you reconcile after a fight? That doesn't make any sense. Uh, this is the way bonobos do it. Bonobos do everything with sex, and so they also reconcile with sex. But the principle is exactly the same. The principle is that you have a valuable relationship that is damaged by conflict, so you need to do something about it. And so my whole picture of the animal kingdom, and including humans also, started to change at that time. So, so what happened? I mean, wh- where'd you go from there? Yeah, after the studies on reconciliation, I, I decided that uh, this whole focus on the negative side of social life, so to speak, uh, was very one-sided. Uh, I thought, I'm going to set up a research program that is not focused on the aggressive side, but I'm going to focus on the socially positive side, uh, conflict resolution, empathy, cooperation, and so on. Do primates have empathy in the sense that they're sensitive to the emotional states of others? Do they have a sense of fairness? Uh, How do they cooperate and when do they cooperate? The question of where morality comes from uh, is bigger than that, but but I'm looking at the components. Let's say I'm looking at the parts that you need in order to build a moral system. So, for example, the concept of reciprocity. You know, I scratch your back, you scratch my back. Well, reciprocity is very well developed, and we've done experiments on reciprocity where, for example, we look in the morning which chimps groom each other. And then we wait a couple of hours and then we introduce food and we see who shares food with uh, each other. And we have found in in those studies that if you have groomed me in the morning, your chance of getting food from me is increased in the afternoon. Meaning that I keep that in mind. I I have a memory of uh, favors that have been done to me, just as we humans do. 
and, and, and the chimps that we're, we're hearing right now, that these are from, from your lab, they're actually doing this. They're, they're sharing stuff. Mm-hmm. But, but they don't have to do this to survive. I mean, their species doesn't require this. No, I think it's absolutely essential for, huh. their, for their life. Why would you live in a group? Um, because group life is better for you than solitary life. And if you live in a group and you do things together, like chimpanzees, they hunt together, they defend their territory together, and they warn each other against predators. Uh, so if you live in a group, uh, you have to do each other favors, otherwise there's no point in living in a group. And if an animal intuitively understands reciprocity, then maybe, just maybe, that animal understands and feels what others are feeling. Empathy. And Franz decided to test this out by looking at something called synchronization. Synchronization, which is part of that whole empathy mechanism, is a very old one in the animal kingdom. And in humans, of course, we can study that with yawn contagion. Humans yawn when others yawn, and it's related to empathy. It, it, it activates the same areas in the brain. It, also, we know that people who have a lot of yawn contagion are highly empathic. People who have problems with empathy, such as autistic children, they don't have yawn contagion. So it is connected. And we study that in our chimpanzees by presenting them with an animated head that yawns. And there's an actual real chimpanzee watching a computer screen on which we play these animations. And so yawn contagion, that you're probably all familiar with, and maybe you're going to start yawning soon now, uh, is, is something that we share with other animals. And that's related to that whole synchronization that underlies empathy. This is so cool because this video that, that you just showed in your talk, um, I mean, you can see these chimpanzees actually yawning. Yeah. But I mean, could you take it a step further? Like, could you, could you see primates acting selfless, you know, like doing something that doesn't necessarily benefit them? Yeah, so uh, at the field station, for example, we have a very old female. Her name is Penny, who can barely walk, who has arthritis. And, and we've seen young females, uh, as soon as she, for example, she heads to the water spigot, which is quite a distance, uh, they run ahead of her and they, they take a drink for her and they, they return to her and spit it in her mouth so that she doesn't need to walk that whole distance. Or if she needs to go into a climbing frame where other chimps are sitting and grooming and socializing, uh, they push her up because she cannot really climb into those things anymore. And, and so, yeah, we see that kind of altruistic acts where they help each other and, and we don't think they get these favors in any way returned because she's a very old female who can barely do anything for them anymore, which is basically empathy-based altruism in the chimpanzee. That's just amazing to me. I mean... It's amazing to me that there's just something within us, within primates, like we're wired to basically to basically be good. It, by, by studying these processes in primates, I, I elevate them a little bit in the sense that I say, well, they're actually more complex than you would think. But also I lower humans a little bit in the sense that I say, well, actually what humans do is maybe not as complex as we think it is. Huh. And, and so it, it brings them closer together. I would not say that we are necessarily wired to be good. We're wired to, to have that whole spectrum from, from atrocious behavior to very nice and gentle behavior. And, and what the, our moral systems do, of course, is emphasize a certain side of that spectrum and the, the more positive side. So how far does that spectrum extend? Normally, you would think that if you reward a primate or any animal for a task, that all they pay attention to is how big is the reward that I get. But we were noticing in our capuchin monkeys that they pay attention to what the other guys are getting. And so that's why we started uh, doing an experiment where we would give one monkey very good rewards, like grapes, and the other one very lousy rewards, like pieces of cucumber. So, so the funny thing is that if you do this experiment with both monkeys getting cucumber, they are perfectly fine. They will do the task 25 times in a row. They will be happily eating their pieces of cucumber. But if you give the other one grapes, then all of a sudden the cucumber is not good enough anymore. And, and, and that's where the monkey starts protesting against it. They start shaking their cage. They start throwing food away, which is, of course, an irrational response. The, the, the economists who do this kind of test on inequity, they, they call that an irrational reaction because 
one piece of cucumber is better than no piece of cucumber. So you should never throw anything away. But that's actually what the monkeys do. I mean, you can understand why he's pissed off. The other monkey's getting a grape. (laughs) So now the interesting thing is that in chimpanzees, we have found that in chimpanzees, sometimes the one who gets the grape tries to equalize the things by refusing the grape till till the partner also gets one. Wow. And we have now reached with chimpanzees the point that their sense of fairness is much more evolved than in these monkeys and is very similar to the human one. That that's amazing. That they basically are saying, no, you know, if my other chimp doesn't get the grape, then I'm not going to eat my grape. Yeah, the point is, of course, that a lot of our moral tendencies are not things that we arrive at by reasoning and logic, because that's all often the philosophers they think that way. They think we we reason ourselves to moral principles, but underneath there are very strong emotions, and that's what you see on display with these monkeys. And it's these emotions that drive the process of us formulating moral principles. I mean, it's it's incredible because we think of of like our primal instincts as things that need to be tamed. And and then centuries of civilization and, 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 and religion have tamed those instincts to result in morality. But actually, the morality comes from our primal instincts. Well, the traditional view is, of course, that, that morality comes either from God or it comes from philosophers. Our basic instincts are all bad and then civilization manages to make it good. We have a, a good side, which is cultural and religious, and a bad side, which is biological. But if you look at other species, like the primates or elephants or dolphins and so on, you see all these socially positive tendencies. You see that entire spectrum that we like in our moral systems of behavior. So it's not something that we came up with or something that we developed only culturally. It's something that is biologically already there. That's biologist Franz de Waal. You can check out his entire talk at ted.npr.org. We like the zoo because we're animals too. We like the zoo because we're animals too. We like the zoo because we're animals too. We want to do like the monkeys do. Hey, thanks for listening to the show this week, Animals and Us. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Brent Bachman, Megan Kane, Sanaz Meshkanpour, and Neva Grant, with help from Daniel Shukin, Portia Robertson-Migas, and Eric Newsom. Our partners at TED include Chris Anderson, June Cohen, Darren Triff, and Janet Lee. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR.